This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank, the International Leaders Summit, Lancer Broadcasting Corporation, and the Pledge Radio in Michigan. I'm Joel Anansami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sartorj, co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. We are delighted to have Yaakov Katz join us today. Yaakov Katz is editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, which brings to light the intriguing inside story behind Israel's bombing of a nuclear reactor in Syria in 2007. Yaakov Katz is also the co-author of Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. Kotz served for close to a decade as the Jerusalem Post military reporter and defense analyst and was a faculty member and lecturer at the Harvard University, where he taught an advanced course in journalism. Prior to taking up the role of editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, Kotz served for two years as a senior policy advisor to Israel's Minister of Economy and Minister of Diaspora Affairs. Originally from Chicago, Kotz lives in Jerusalem with his family. At the International Leaders Summit, we've been honored to work in partnership with the Jerusalem Post in hosting our prominent public policy events in Israel since the launch of the Jerusalem Leaders Summit in 2015. And we've been most appreciative to host Yaakov Katz and his colleagues from the Jerusalem Post as distinguished keynote speakers and moderators at our Jerusalem Leaders Summit events to strengthen ties with Israel on the economic, healthcare, security, and trade fronts. We extend a warm welcome to Yaakov Katz. It is a great honor to have you on America's Roundtable. Hello, Yaakov. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We have closely followed Israel's politics and are glad to hear that the new government has just been formed. Israel did not have a fully functioning government for over 17 months, and now with the third elections, a national unity government was formed, which is a coalition government with Likud's Benjamin Netanyahu and the Blue and Whites party head Benny Gantz, who will rotate in power. Yaakov, how do you see the operational effectiveness of this rotational government? Look, I think that the, the it has the potential to work, and it has the potential to really bring stability to Israel after, like you mentioned, 17 months of not having a government and not having stability. The problem will be is that whenever you bring two people to share a role, you're opening yourself for the possibility of a uh, of some potential fight that could break out at some point along the way. You can't reject the possibility that after the first 18 months, when Prime Minister Netanyahu's term is supposed to be up, the uh, and the rotation is supposed to go into effect, Netanyahu will refuse to let go of his seat and vacate and hand it over to Benny Gantz, and that could be the end of this agreement, right? So it'll be interesting to see how that really happens. Netanyahu has not been someone who has really uh, oftentimes given in to political uh, agreements or, or, or concessions. And there's a lot of, of speculation that that might be the case also when these 18 months are, are over. How do you see this new government respond to the coronavirus challenges? Is something going to change? And uh, what do you see as an exit strategy from the coronavirus lockdown and the reopening of Israel's economy? Well, I think that 
here Israel has done a quite a good job uh, in containing the virus. We were one of the first countries to put a to to ban flights from China, other places in the Far East, then from Europe to put people who come into the country into quarantine. That's still the case. Anyone who enters Israel has to go into 14 days mandated quarantine into hotels, as a matter of fact, run by the Israeli military. Um, it's not a military jail, but the sense is that people just can't roam around the country and potentially infect other people. It's been good. There have been lockdowns throughout the country. We're still pretty much in, in lockdown over Independence Day, which was just celebrated. We really weren't allowed to venture outside our homes or beyond a 500-meter uh, kind of radius around our homes. So this has all been effective, and Israel was quick to get its hands on equipment and ventilators, and I commend the government uh, for, for the job that it's done there, and the leader, Prime Minister Netanyahu. The, the question is now, as we begin to exit and, and kind of go back to our daily lives, go back to work, send our kids back to school, will we be... Uh, Will this be effective and will it not potentially uh, increase the spread of the virus? And this is uh, the big unknown. I think that no one really has clear answers of how this plays out. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks. I hope and pray that we have, we're past the, the worst of this. Uh, there's over, over 200 Israelis who have died. We have uh, about 15,000 plus people who have been infected. There's over 100 that are still in very serious condition. Remember, we're a small country. You know, we're not 350 million people like in the United States. There's just nine million people in Israel. But for the so for the for the time being, I think it's been an effective policy. We have to see that this is you know this retains itself, but also keep in mind that. The consequence of all of these restrictions has been the dire impact to the economy, the fact that a million Israelis are currently out of work, unemployment is almost 30 uh, percent. We have to find a way to get people back to work, back to their jobs. We can't let people slip below the poverty line. That can be potentially even more devastating than what this virus can do. So everything has to be, you have to find the right balance between safeguarding the economy and at the same time protecting people from this silent, hidden enemy known as the coronavirus. Right. We're pleased to have Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, join us from Israel on America's Roundtable. And Yaakov, this past week, uh, Con Coughlin, the UK Telegraph's defense editor and chief foreign affairs columnist, stated, with rogue states happy to exploit coronavirus, we cannot afford to let our guard down. He also writes, I quote, for civilized nations, the pandemic is to devise the best means of limiting the spread of COVID-19 and to provide the best possible care for its victims. Sadly, the desire to place humanitarian considerations above all others is by no means universal, for there is also a small cohort of rogue states, such as China, Russia, and Iran, that prefer to view the pandemic as more of an opportunity to exploit the crisis for their own political ends, unquote. Yaakov, we understand uh, this all too well, that while we were in Israel uh, for our third Jerusalem leader summit, over 500 rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel's sovereign territory. And we do realize that uh, Israel is in a difficult region, uh, facing uh, existential threats uh, when we monitor what is taking place in Iran, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, Yaakov, what can you tell us about Iran launching its first military satellite into space? on April 22 that could fuel its development of ballistic missiles. The world seems to be focused, of course, on the efforts, the global efforts to combat the spread of the coronavirus. But the Iranians 
who have been hit very hard, definitely within the Middle East, uh, the most afflicted by the virus. While they're talking about only about 90,000 people infected, about 6,000 people dead, according to intelligence, in Israel and other places around the West, the number seems to be much higher, uh, possibly in the hundreds of thousands of Iranians that have become infected. But the question really comes down to what impact this is having on Iran. We know that Iran is continuing with its nuclear program. We know that they've installed new cascades of centrifuges just in recent weeks. We know that they tested, that they launched a satellite. They didn't test it. They successfully launched a satellite, as you mentioned, just a few days ago. And the, the impact of what that all means could be that the Iranians are showing, demonstrating, and, and, and proving that the virus might have devastated the country but it has not hurt their efforts and their continued aggression towards Israel and towards the West. Uh, the impact of the, of the satellite needs to be looked at less at what they put into space, which is a spy satellite. We don't know the exact what it has and what it entails and what the resolution is, what type of camera. I wouldn't over-exaggerate it and think that it is something that really poses a direct intelligence threat to Israel. But the fact that they can put something in space shows that they have a rocket capability that can also potentially one day carry a nuclear warhead. And let's not forget that this is what Iran ultimately wants. It wants to be able to obtain a nuclear weapon. It wants to be able to create a new balance of power in the Middle East as well as throughout the world. That's what it's ultimately after. Uh, putting a satellite into space is a nice little gimmick, but what they want really is to get their hands on a nuclear capability. And that is where the world has to really show that it's not going to let that happen. And I think that we've seen so far leader 2015 Iran nuclear deal. We've seen the sanctions stay in place and, uh, and how they've been effective in getting the Iranians to recalculate, but they haven't stopped Iran. And it remains to be seen what impact, A, the drop in the price of oil, which is hurting the Iranian economy, plus the coronavirus, uh, will, will, will have ultimately on their final calculation of will they continue with this program, continue investing billions of dollars, not just in developing nuclear capability, but also don't forget they have this adventure in Syria. They're trying to entrench themselves in Syria to pose a direct threat to Israel along the northern border. This is all against what the Iranian people need. They need a government that works for them, for their benefit, for their welfare, for their health. That's not what they're getting right now. Yaakov, uh, in your book, Shadow Strike Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, um, you brought to light uh, the story of the inside story of Israel bombing a nuclear reactor in Syria in 2007, uh, specifically uh, the challenges of what you see in Syria. How much of a threat is Syria today uh, when you look at it from an Israeli perspective? You know, Syria, has its military has disintegrated as a result of almost 10 years now of a civil war. Uh, the, Syria used to be the last conventional military that posed a direct threat to Israel. It had a larger military than Israel, more tanks, more artillery cannons, more soldiers, less developed, lo less advanced than Israel, but definitely was a threat. The current situation is that Syria itself doesn't pose a direct threat to Israel. They don't really have capabilities. But what's happening in Syria poses a threat. The disintegration, the division in the country, the fact that at one point you had ISIS there, no longer there, but still some pockets of resistance. You have the Iranians, the Russians, Hezbollah. Uh, this is not a good situation. Israel would prefer to have a stable neighbor to its north or along any of its borders. And, and in addition to all of that, Iran is using the territory of Syria to set up bases so it can put, it can create a second Hezbollah in Syria like the Hezbollah that exists in Lebanon. Israel cannot let that happen. Hezbollah in Lebanon today already has 150,000 rockets and missiles that cover the entire state of Israel, directly threaten Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Beersheba, Kiryat Shmona, Stayrot, Eilat. They could strike anywhere they want. 
to allow the Iranians to set up another proxy like that in Syria would be could be devastating for the state of Israel. And that's why we see every couple of days, every few weeks, another mysterious airstrike against something in Syria, some base, some some building, something. Right. This is all part of this global effort by Israel to take down and prevent the Iranians from building up these bases there. So I wouldn't say it's a conventional threat. I wouldn't say it's a massive threat, but it's a threat that needs to be dealt with. Yaakov, uh, July 1 is a projected date for extending Israel's sovereignty over some 128 Jewish communities, which are situated in the Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank, uh, which is also in line with President Trump's vision for peace and prosperity in the region. Do you see this as a realistic timetable, and do you anticipate any obstacles? Look, I think it's definitely a realistic timetable. The, the, the question will be uh, whether Israel goes ahead with it or not, right? Don't forget that this is a very contentious issue. Israelis believe that most, that this land, that Judea and Samaria, what's known as the West Bank, belongs to, to, to the state of Israel. Most Israelis believe that most of the land, maybe not all, but definitely most of it belongs to Israel. And therefore, they support it. But the world doesn't, and we can't ignore that. Most of the world in the international community still hold by this opinion that this is occupied territory. And as a result, while the Trump administration has stood strong alongside Israel on this issue, there, the Democrats have a completely different approach to all of this. We've heard in recent days how, how former Vice President Biden, if he were to be elected come November, would not, for example, move the embassy back to Tel Aviv. But he wouldn't look fondly at, uh, at annexation. And Israel has to also calculate what is in its best interest. Does it annex now at the risk that, uh, that Biden wins and then it might have to pay a price later on? Or does it believe that maybe Trump will win and therefore it'll still have another four years and it won't have to pay that price? So it, 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 there, there's going to be a gamble. How will the Europeans respond to this? What will happen in Jordan and Egypt, countries that Israel has peace with? That are that important peace treaties that are pillars of stability throughout the Middle East. What will happen to the relations with those countries, right? Which will probably not look fondly on an Israeli unilateral annexation of territory. And what does this mean for future peace efforts with the Palestinians? So, I think it's 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 a very contentious issue. I think most Israelis, again, support it. But how it plays out, it's still too early to tell. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable, Yaakov. Uh, Yaakov Katz is editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, and also other titles as well. We encourage our listeners to uh, track these books down and uh, certainly obtain them through Amazon and other uh, platforms. And uh, once again, Yaakov, thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Yaakov. Thank you both. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank, the International Leaders Summit, Lancer Broadcasting Corporation, and the Pledge Radio in Michigan. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sartorj, co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. We'll be right back after these messages.